0: I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This episode needs no introduction. It is powerful. It is beautiful. It's very fast. So pay attention. I am very excited. My guest for today is Melanie Klein, and we are just going to jump right in. Here we go. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I'm sitting here with this really incredible soul sitting across from me. I'd like to introduce all of you to Melanie Klein. Melanie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you. There are so many facets of what you do in activism and yoga and in, in uh, feminism. I don't even know where to begin. So I'm going to ask you, Melanie, can you introduce yourself to the listeners and then we'll get a little more into the podcast?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I um, am a sociology and gender women studies professor, and have been for almost 20 years. I am also a writer and have published um, four collective works um, on yoga, empowerment, body image, and resilience uh, in the last 10 years, as well as contributed to five to six other books. I also uh, am an empowerment coach and success coach. And for me, my inroad into empowerment personally was related to body image and body kindness. So. In terms of my professional life, that is where most of my time, energy, focus, and content really began over a 15-year period. I was really recognizing that for what I found for a lot of my students uh, as I began teaching in the early 2000s, that making peace with one's body was really the inroad to a larger, uh, more holistic sense of empowerment.
0: So I love that your idea about empowerment and success is not what traditionally we think of, which is, you know, it's somewhat of a patriarchal idea of what empowerment and success is. It's very powerful money. And, and very linear, right? Very linear. And by the way, that is A, superficial, and B, very fleeting. It, it, at, at any moment, we can lose that. And then we have no sense of self. Absolutely. Explain from your, from your perspective, what the internal empowerment and success means, and forgive me for doing this long question. Did it come from what you didn't have when you were younger, going through body image distress, eating disorder, whatever, is that what was missing for you? Uh, first of all, I
1: love your long question. Just be prepared for long answers. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so I'm going to answer the last question first because I think that's the easiest, and that is yes. I grew up. Um, you know, I'm I just turned 50 this summer, so I was born in 1972. I was really, uh, you know, the the MTV generation. You know, I remember very clearly in the early 80s when MTV came out and. We now had all of these images to go along with the, you know, with the music that we were listening to. And this was another layer of imagery on top of already all of the teen magazines, teen beat, et cetera, that were available at the time. And so that had a really huge impact on how I saw myself in those adolescent years, because I was about 10 years old when MTV came out. And um, it was just very significant in beginning to create a framework of what I saw as Desirable, normative, worthy, valuable, etc. And so the entire conversation, uh, the entire framework that was created was completely external. There was no conversation about agency, autonomy, sovereignty in one's body. There was no conversation about the fact that these images were very carefully crafted and there were, you know, meanings, there were power dynamics within them and that we could change them or even challenge them. There was not any conversation for me that I was aware of at that time. And so when I first walked into a sociology of women class when I was in my early 20s at the local community college, my professor really blew open and blew apart all of the expectations, projections, assumptions, and all of the internalized oppression that I had taken in through the socialization process and had crystallized into my own identity, as well as my expectations and judgment of others. And that was a incredibly transformative healing and, uh, dare I say, spiritual process for me to move from the outside world into the inner world. And when I began to specifically learn about women in the 1960s and 70s who twofold, one, um, had started consciousness raising groups, specifically out in New York, where they understood part of the social justice work and social advocacy had to include uh, conversations around the internal way of being and feeling, and that that was something important to do, to raise our consciousness internally, to begin to you know take that internalized oppression deconstruct it and reconstruct new narratives um that we desired that were very authentic to us that were in service of us that were supportive of us as opposed to obviously um you know a narrative of domination that was really important to me and my classes and the dialogue and the relationship that I built with my mentor were very much in that vein and then outside of class, every day, almost every moment, I was continuing these conversations. So that consciousness-raising process and the idea that we can go in and decolonize our own minds and deconstruct the culture that we've taken for granted was really powerful. And then also a little later on, learning about the women later in the 60s and the early 70s who specifically We're establishing courses like, you know, um, feminist studies at UC Santa Cruz and including courses about, you know, the goddess, not the goddess as an actual entity or anything in the vein of institutionalized religion, but the goddess as a symbol um, and how power, right, comes from within that whole power within paradigm as a, you know, alternative to the power over paradigm within patriarchal cultures was also um, really radical and eye opening. So between those two things that I was learning, as well as my sociological training, as well as the conversation and relationship that I was building with my mentor, having this intergenerational sort of solidarity and camaraderie, um, really began to completely change my my inner landscape at the time. And then a few years later, so this was all happening starting in nineteen ninety four, At age 22 in 1996, I um, discovered, you know, embodied yoga practices. So a lot of physical asana and breath work, meditation. um, Discovered vipassana meditation in about the late 90s, and those became integral, you know, components of my own consciousness raising, my own transformative process. And between the kind of intellectual and the theoretical combined with the mindfulness work and the embodied work. Was just, I mean, I I reflect so often in the work that I do as a as a coach, as a professor, and as a writer, just how I don't think I could have ever imagined when I stepped on the the path who I could become as a result. And so it was very important for me um, early on. I had a very keen moment of awareness that I knew that doing this kind of work and being in this kind of environment and having these sorts of relationships. Were the things that I was going to do for the rest of my life in some form
0: i I know that it might sound interesting that this is what i'm what I'm going to pick out from what you just said, but it keeps going over in my head as you said it, and it kind of took my breath away. the difference between the power over and the power within mm-hmm. say a little bit more about that because when we and and this is my perspective. When we think we have power over, and some of that comes with the illusion of having an eating disorder, it did for me. I, I felt like it gave me power over people or things or self, whatever. Again, fleeting, could lose it in a moment, and would feel like I I was nothing. Power within is expansive. It is you. You don't lose that. It no matter how you know, n- knocked around, you get in life, there's still power within. And I'm sorry if that was an interesting thing to just glom onto, but say more about that.
1: Oh, no, I, I actually love that that is the gem that you picked out of everything, because I don't think I have opportunities to talk about that enough, right? These conversations, like the conversation we're having I've had similar conversations and yet it's really contingent upon the host. What are those extra special things that come out? And even the way that we started this conversation, there are nuanced aspects that I don't actually share very much. So I already have appreciated that I've been able to go into, you know, even talking about that very, um, you know, unique and special integration of those aspects of my life. And then out of all of that, you're like, Ooh, I I, want to know more about this. I think that's really Um, insightful uh, of you. And with that said, you're incredibly right, right? If we're talking about power within, when we go into the body and think about what that feels like versus to conceptualize power over in an embodied state, we recognize energetically and physically, uh, there's something very different that happens, right? Um, It feels open and expansive. There's a lot of possibility um, in terms of power within, for me uh, recognizing right when we're looking at the systems and structures of oppression that are you know that are operating simultaneously and overlapping in our culture patriarchy and white supremacy you know male domination all of that um what we find is you know it's 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 linear and it's hierarchical it's a it's a vertical hierarchy and when we look at that we recognize that in the socialization process there's something called social stratification that depending on your position in that vertical hierarchy, you're going to have either greater or lesser access to resources and rewards. And I really loved when I was exposed to the idea of power within that as we develop our own power, um, not only do we become, you know, as you were describing, you know, sovereign and autonomous, and we are not at the mercy of the external surround, but we resource from the inside out. But also that when we do, power within does not mean that we take anything away from anyone else. And we also don't believe in the idea of scarcity. We don't believe that if any other group or any other individual is empowered, that somehow we will be disempowered. And I think that that is we see very very clearly especially in today's culture and uh you know what is happening you know in the world of social justice and politics in the last 5 years is even more extreme i would say than when i first started studying this in the 90s and certainly when i started teaching in um, 2003 and we find that there's such enormous and violent aggressive backlash about the idea of quote, others, subordinate group, marginalized groups, marginalized individuals, being empowered in any way, there is such a feeling of threat, right? And the idea we need to push them back into the kitchens, into the cotton fields, out of the classrooms, out of the boardroom, out of leadership positions, because will there be anything for us? And it's such a scarcity mindset. It's so limited in creativity and possibility And when you talk about expansion, right, power within is ripe with creativity and possibility. And it's about solidarity and it's about mutual uplift and it's about community and collaboration. And that, you know, my sense of empowerment does not threaten anyone else's ability to be empowered. Um, And which is why in my work, in my life, community and collaboration has been key. It has been really a part of that central spoke of my work um, it is also very much when I when I think about you know this idea of, oh my goodness, there, there's fear that if you are empowered you know as a woman, as a person of color, as a person with a disability, as a person of you know, larger size, whatever, there will be less for me. Um, it's It's just so striking because the truth is when all individuals have the ability to, to be empowered and access, resources, you know, whether it's health or education, so on and so forth, we actually all benefit. <laughs> when nothing is taken away from us, actually so much more is given to us. And that I've said in many interviews that very selfishly, part of my desire to empower others was the enthusiasm that I had about my own liberation, recognizing, oh my goodness, there's not only an explanation, but there are solutions right, to this, both internally and externally. And secondary, when you are empowered, Karen, or when the listeners here are empowered, I benefit from that. What would the world look like if we had more individuals who are confident and capable and who are well-resourced and who had access to resources and felt a level of satisfaction and fulfillment? I mean, I I even think about, you know, the whole term of the idea of self-actualization. That's another way to look at it. We actually benefit. Nothing is taken away. We actually bulk up our social resources in that way.
0: One of the things that I'm finding so interesting when we're thinking about eating disorders is there's so many different ways of articulating the struggle of an eating disorder, and it kind of all comes back to the same place. But all I keep thinking about now is... Again, when I was in my eating disorder and people that are struggling, they are trying to find, they, they, how do I say this? First of all, I, I felt no power within. I felt no creativity. I felt no self-esteem. I felt, I felt no expansion. I, I was, I was just, I can't even think of the word right now. Sorry. I just get very excited sometimes when I'm talking. Yeah, I love it. I I'm love like, it. I, I already have two other things I want to say. Okay. I'm okay. That. And, and using eating disorder behaviors is a way of trying to manipulate power with it from the outside because it's it's almost like just another way of saying that i'm trying to use all of these external forces to actually make me feel that the power within that i want but i can only get it from within does that make sense it
1: does and you know so two things one actually goes back to your previous question um that I wanted to include in my previous answer and forgot. But this, your comments here reminded me. Um, and that is the idea of you know the mind-body split. So if we're talking about hierarchies, right? Um, that's something really important. And there, I, forgive me, I can't remember the title right now, but there was a very important book that I had read and studied um, as I first became a professor and an undergrad talking about all the various dualities that we have in Greco-Roman culture, right? And when we have these dualities, we don't have integration and we feel that, you know, again, the the mind, the intellect, which has been gendered masculine, by the way, right? Has power over um, the body, which has been gendered feminine. So there's some really interesting power dynamics, idea of gender and misogyny uh, that come into play there. And the idea being that we can just exist here and then we can, submit our will, right, on the voice, the embodied voices that are either telling us we need rest, that, you know, we do not need more exercise, we need more food, whatever it happens to be, we completely cancel them out. That is very much part of that linear hierarchical way of being and thinking and doing. Uh, and then the other part, when you were talking about, you know, uh not feeling empowered at all in your experience, right? To to be empowered actually means we have to be in our body, right? There is no full holistic sense of empowerment that does not include embodiment. And, you know, to go into the body for a lot of people can be for a variety of reasons and traumas and things like that um, can be a scary place to go right? Whether, you know, there can be disassociation happening, there can be that split happening, a variety of other things occurring. Um, And and in order to be embodied and to be empowered, you know, oftentimes somatic work, other healing modalities um, have to be available. The person has to know about and has to be guided into doing that work of bringing them not only in their head, but back into their body and being able to create a connection between the two to actually feel expansive, to feel full And, you know, you were saying earlier about um, not only feeling, you know, so expansive when you think about empowerment, um, you know, but being sovereign in your ability to, uh, you know, to feel empowered on your own terms and not have it contingent upon anything outside of you. Well, that's also an aspect of resilience, right? So the last book that was published in September of 2020 was Embodied Resilience Through Yoga, Um, I felt it was really important. I had my first book, Yoga and Body Image had come out and that was the only one I had planned on on curating and and that was published in 2014. And then there was a really clear indication that there was a thread uh, emerging in terms of what happens when we create peace or at least neutrality, acceptance with our bodies. What can we then do in the world? So the next book was, was Yoga Rising, talking about that. The third book, sort of in that series, was there was another theme emerging, which was how these embodied practices actually allowed people to recover, to heal from, you know, loss and grief and addiction, sexual trauma, so on and so forth. And I thought we need to talk about this too. That you know, uh, being embodied, being empowered, also relates to our ability to be resilient, which means that from the inside out we have the ability to bounce back more quickly, we can, we can be more flexible. And so between all three of them, I find that they're really superpowers and are so crucial and important um, more and more in the world that we live in. And that does not mean that we should not be uh, focusing on the external structures and systems that are first of all, creating social ills and social problems, absolutely right? The very beginning of my study and work, you know, almost 30 years ago was very much understanding, deconstructing, challenging, and recreating those systems and structures. And at the same time, while those things are happening, I think it is crucial as well for individuals to learn how to become embodied, empowered, and to become resilient so that we can be fortified to continue to do as well the external work. Because I know for me, I found, especially in the 1990s, there was very little conversation about mindfulness, embodied practices, et cetera, in the social justice world. And I mean, people were just burning out. People were completely just, you know, um, overwhelmed uh, with the amount of work and the topics that they were dealing with. And I realized, you know, a couple of years in, that if I wanted to continue to have an impact, on the social world and really create change externally i had to give time and attention for my internal space
0: how do we now sort of bring in media literacy in this conversation meaning i i very much have a have an internal compass i i you know i i know who i am i can I can see what's happening outside of me. I'm also 25 years recovered and I'm 52. So that, so part of that is time and and life and whatnot. How do we work with media literacy with younger kids who don't, like you said, you grew up in the time of MTV, like that, what happens to our young brains when we're being bombarded by all of these images? How do we start? Young, with helping these these children.
1: Well, you know, I have to say, uh, for me personally, as a mother, and this may not be a popular opinion or strategy, and I know it can be challenging. But I'll be honest: for when my son was born in two thousand and nine, he never saw television turned on until he was four. He also did not have an iPad or a computer till he was ten. Um, he did not have a video game console until after he was 10. In fact, I remember the first time we turned on a TV, he was like, what is that? His father and I only watched things after he was in bed. It was really important for me to give him as much time as I could to be screen-free, understanding how the brain was being shaped at that time. And, um, you know, it was not always convenient for me, to be quite honest. You know, if I was cooking dinner or whatever else, it was so would have been more convenient to just stick him in front of a screen but i allowed him to have a lot more free play and um yeah to make a mess and sometimes hang on my on my arm but it was just very important um i had read jerry mander's book many years ago about you know actually arguing about not having television at all now i don't go that far but he brought up really um sort of you know incredible points in that book um but for me i really took into account And while I'm speaking to you, I'm actually going to look up that title if anybody is interested, because I can't remember right now. Um, I, you know, I really thought about, oh, geez, you know, I, yeah, started watching, you know, MTV at age 10. And yes, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons before that. And I really, you know, enjoyed them. But I realized I had nothing, nothing like what my, my son was going to be bombarded with. By the way, the gerrymander book is the four arguments for the elimination of television. Um, and so that that was my personal approach. In addition, um, I took what I was doing in the classroom, which when we talk about media literacy, it was an educational movement that started in the 1980s. That was very, um, you know, it was is very practical in the sense, hey, we're not like Jerry, we're not actually arguing for the elimination of television, although, again, he makes great points. But we are going to point out that we are now reaching a threshold where we have not had this level of mediation or exposure to so many media platforms. This is well before social media um, in any other time in human history. And if we are going to not only have that level of exposure and access, but we are going to have private companies who are creating these images, influencing these images, and profiting off these images, then we need to actually allow the populace to be informed about how, why media is created um, to begin to learn how to actively interact with what they're taking in, be able to ask critical questions and make decisions, right? And so that started in the eighties. I was trained in that in the nineties with one of the pioneers of um, media literacy education, and she was fabulous woman And that was so compelling to me because I already knew, even prior to being exposed to media literacy, that obviously my social environment had a huge negative impact on the way that I felt about myself. So I had been teaching this and then after he was born, not only did I, for me specifically, that was the right choice for our family, uh, limit um, his media exposure for the first 10 years and he didn't have television for the first four, nor any other screens. You know, we would have conversations because here's the thing, even though he didn't have access to TV or video games or a computer or anything like YouTube or even watching cartoons, just driving down the street, he was being exposed to billboards and signs on the bus and the covers of magazines in the grocery store, which is why I felt for the first four years, that's enough. Do I really need to then put something in his lap? And so we just began to have conversations. And I remember him being four or five years old, already beginning to deconstruct billboards. It's like, oh, wow, look at how they're trying to sell that. You know, and he's 13 now and he is mediated, right? Especially during COVID, the way that he was able to be in touch with his friends was to talk and play video games on the, you know, online. I don't even know how through his console playing Fortnite and different things. And I felt very comfortable at that point, him doing that, because I knew that he had a very critical consciousness. He watches documentaries. He watches films. He does, watches director's cuts. He is so curious about how everything is created. And so what's been wonderful about our relationship is I trust his choices. I am not like a lot of parents who helicopter around him and are worried about his exposure because I know he knows his limits. I know he knows about the impact i also know he knows why things are created and so for me i f- i personally feel that i have a pretty well you know um well adjusted um positively functioning young person in a heavily mediated environment who can be less susceptible than if he did not have this education
0: i I know that the subliminal messages that people, people have no idea, have no idea. But here's the thing, Karen,
1: and I'm sorry, I know I cut in. They think that they do because we do, I will say, you know, on YouTube and TikTok and other things, there are a lot of people actually creating really great content for young people who will be talking about filters and body image and they're, and they're, they're doing Deconstruction. Like it's pretty amazing what these young people have access to in a positive regard around education. And yet, the level of exposure is so extreme that even if we intellectually consciously know this information, we are exposed to such a degree it is still making its way into our subconscious mind.
0: It absolutely is. I I had the honor of having Jean Kilborn on the ah, podcast. Fangirl, fangirl. <laughs> I I am am such a fan of Jean oh, Kilborn. God, yes. I saw her, so I went to college in like I think 1988. And I first of all went to an all-girls junior college. I I, you know, and I tell this story often because I think people are like, you know. Everything has to be done right from the get-go. No, it doesn't. I didn't get into a four-year college out of high school. I it wasn't where I was destined to be. I had to start at a junior college. There was a decision: like, is she going to go further? Is she not? You you can't say everything has to be done in a, in a way that's mapped out by society. I went to a junior college, then I went to a college for creative writing, and then I went from like, anyway. Wow. Did I digress? Um, I'm just giving people flexibility in life, but I, Jean Kilborn, it was when she first wrote Killing Us Softly. And I remember being in the audience, watching her talk and thinking two things. Well, first of all, one thing that she said that, that blew me out of the water. Was she had interviewed a bunch of people and they said, "Oh no no no, we don't we don't get bombarded by these subliminal messages. Like we know exactly what's happening." And she said to one of the gentlemen, "Really? Because you're wearing a shirt that says Gap, right? Yeah, yeah. Meaning, like, are you even aware that you're advertising? Like, it is we are internalizing all of it. So now imagine the images we get of bodies." And this is women, men, non-binary. Like, I am not just saying women, but at the time I was at an all-girls college. But think of the images we are bombarded with, with bodies and violence of bodies. And how that impacts somebody's perception of how we're, quote unquote, supposed to be in the world, what we're supposed to look like we don't even realize how much we're internalizing it. I don't know if you have anything to add to that other than, yes, Jean Kilborn. <laughs>
1: oh, kidding. of course I have tons to add to that. <laughs> um, yeah. Jean Kilborn was also uh, incredibly influential. And I think it's just so important to recognize her as a pioneer in media literacy, sp- specifically talking about advertisements um, in terms of impacts on smoking, you know, alcohol advertisements, Uh advertisements you know featuring bodies that not only sexualized but objectified, created, you know, completely uh, one-dimensional and you know images of beauty and sexual violence, all of that. She's incredible. I remember my mentor when I went to a junior college because um, I had actually left a four-year university that I, I took time off and then I went to community college and she put on killing us softly and it was an actual video reel you know, dating myself here, put the video reel on and then had to match the audio from a cassette. And then, you know, all the iterations um, of that film, you know, I think there were four total, the last one coming out around 2008, I think it was, uh, I showed in my classes, just mind blowing when I saw the way that she, you know, used the advertisements that I was familiar with and showed, and, and this was the key for me. It wasn't about one or two and then making a claim that this one advertisement or this one image is going to have an impact on you. But it was like, these are ubiquitous. They are unavoidable. They are unavoidable at this point. I mean, we are literally assaulted over and over again. And I use that word very, very purposefully because we don't have consent with most of these images that we're taking. in. it's not just on our screens or the movies that we watch or, you know, the social media platforms that we choose to scroll through. It's just walking around the physical world and having no choice in what we are being exposed to. That was really, um, really incredible, incredibly powerful to me. And I had an experience uh, back in 1997, I had gotten a scholarship to go to the Z Media Institute in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, um, put on by Z Magazine. So that was Lydia Sargent, uh, Michael Albert, um, you know, some of the guest teachers uh, were Norm Solomon, Noam Chomsky, and I went out there. To understand how mass media was created and why and funded and the impact, but also how to create alternative forms of media before we even were really using the internet, <laughs> before decades, you know, 15 years practically before we were used on Facebook. And um, we were in a non advertising town in Woods Hole, right? It also had a, a huge marine biology institute there. And I was there two days and I remember walking around. And I still remember this guy, Sam from Arizona, who was also out there. And I looked at him and I was like, why is this town weird? I can't put my finger on it. Like, I don't know what it is. It just feels strange here. And he said, oh, it's it's a non-advertising town. I went, what? And I looked around and I went, oh, whoa. I couldn't even identify what it was because I'm so used to it. I couldn't even see what was missing. I took for granted that presence and and then its absence. I went, oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, you're right. After going to Woods Hole for that seven to 10 days or whatever, I flew to see my father who was working in Arizona at the time. And we went up to uh, the White Mountains and the Mogollon Rim up there. Also no advertising, very remote. When I came back to LA, I'd only been gone two weeks. That is it, Two weeks. And I got into my car and I drove down one of the major thoroughfares in the city and I was overwhelmed. This is 1997, by the way, a fraction of what we're dealing with now, right? I didn't have a phone in my hand. I didn't have a computer. I was not on the internet and none of that was happening. And I remember having trouble driving because my my eyes were trying to consciously take in every single thing at this you know, this one intersection on all four corners, was like a 7-Eleven and all these billboards and all the, I went, whoa. And I could feel my heart rate increasing. I had already been practicing yoga at this point for three years. So I was pretty embodied. I could listen to my body. And I just recognized the high level of stimulation that was happening. And within about a day that uh, dissipated. And I thought to myself, wow, okay. It's not that these things are gone. It's now that all of this is bypassing my conscious mind because it's such an overload and going into my subconscious mind. And my goodness, think about, you know, at that time I was 25, the 25 years of content that I've taken in unknowingly, without consent, without awareness, totally taken for granted. That was one of the pivotal aha moments in my life where I really experienced kind of what you were describing like seeing it and understanding what was
0: happening. We have no idea how many advertisements we're listening to, how many billboards we're seeing, how, I mean, it is it is really tough at this point to go, going back into our internal power to create what we want, what visions we yes. want, what we find, you know, to even think about what Foods we like. I mean, talking about like making dinner. Like I, I don't really cook, but when I do things, I often have the TV on. Like I have like the news and whatnot, and I don't even recognize anymore. Like all of the commercials I'm hearing, the diet, the weight loss, the the good foods, the bad foods, and the the thin mints and the the, you know the, the the everything's thin now. The thin Reese's peanut butter cup. Like holy shit. Oh yeah,
1: there's so much. I mean, when you describe that, I, I can think sure, you know at least 20 years where not only that whole thin and light, but also you know moralizing food, you know, with the good and the bad, and, and bringing all of that in. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting when you're talking about you know all of these things that how how much we're taking in. I know that one of the statistics off the top of my head was, you know, that in the in contemporary you know, world, North America, the amount of images that we take in in a year is more than someone in the fifties took in over a lifetime. Right. So that's one, one statistic. The other thing uh, I have to say is, so after I came home from Woods Hole, Massachusetts in 19, 1997, I came home and got rid of cable television. Um, and I kept, uh, I had a, need a VHS player. And then eventually I had a DVD player and I kept those because I love pop culture, by the way, I freaking love it, but I wanted to have a conscious choice, right? This was part of my, my mindfulness, my consciousness work. I wanted to have a choice about what I was watching when I was watching it. And so to play a VHS tape that I used to get a blockbuster or a DVD. Oh blockbuster. Oh, yeah. Keep going. Sorry. I could go (laughs) ahead and make a choice and and watch it without commercials and interruptions. I would go to the movies when we didn't have commercials at the beginning of movies and theaters. We just had previews, but we didn't have, you know, all of those other commercials that we oftentimes see. And I will say one thing that is great about sort of the, the realm of, you know, contemporary media options now is, you know, whether I'm watching Netflix or Hulu is being able to pick my show and not having commercials. So, you know, there are some really great things that benefit us that we can opt for should we choose it to help to have more conscious decision-making in what it is that we're watching and that what we're we're doing, right? Um, And like I said, we do have um, more platforms with a lot more content creators, not just having only Gene Kilborn, because Gene Kilborn is all we had until I'm going to say the late 1990s, um, you know, on this topic, but having lots of content creators on, you know, sharing this information as a way to, I feel like, combat the increasing amount of mediation. We also have a lot more uh, body diversity than we've ever had. I mean, my gosh, having this conversation even 10 years ago, certainly at the beginning of my teaching career, my writing career, we did not have this level of body diversity um, represented at all. I think about, you know, shows that are, fem- you know, woman-centered, that are centered on the lives of people of color, that feature people, you know, with um, visible physical disabilities, um, you know, biracial couples, uh, the the storylines the character development the the various bodies I there's been a huge shift and at the same time we still have an increase in some sort of those standard myopic one-dimensional storylines and 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 images and for me you know I always knew that the work would be done when the normative pattern when what is normative is, diversity in all forms, writers, directors, actors, storylines, bodies, etc. And I feel we are closer than we've ever been before, but we certainly do not have parity. It is still not the normative standard. The fact that we have to have conversations like this, the fact that there still is a focus on bodies and that we're happy and clapping and talking about the fact that there's diversity is a pretty huge indication that we have not reached the point where it's normative or the standard, right? So that's one of the social indicators or measures that I use, but I would be remiss in saying that we don't have more diversity. And I think that there are a lot of young people, not all young people for sure, but there are a lot more young people now than certainly when I grew up having conversations I can't imagine having at 10, 11, or 12 years old. Right. I mean, some of the conversations that my son and his friends and, you know, his peer groups are, you know, when they're talking about, you know, media, when they're talking about bodies, when they're talking about, you know, various things they understand and know and can recognize sexism and racism and misogyny and homophobia, etc. All of the isms. Uh, I was not having those conversations at 10, 11, 12 and 13 years old. So I think a lot of that is, um, you know, a lot of the Gen Xers growing up and raising their kids in a particular way, having certain conversations at the home. It has to do with all of the advocacy work um, that has been done, right, uh, over the years in which we have diversity in shows and different writers and directors. And that's been, I have to say, I have to focus on the wins. And I have had to focus on uh, these sorts of things to keep going. Um, because it is just, can be overwhelming otherwise. And, you know, when I see a show like Mindy Kaling's Never Have I Ever, uh, for example, because, you know, I just mentioned it, season three just came out. There was nothing like that five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. And, you know, or if I think about, you know, uh, things, even changes that have happened at Barbie um, and Mattel over the years. And, you know, I can say behind the scenes that many of the feminist, Um, organizers, agitators, um, you know, social justice workers, who I have worked with over the last 20 years have gone into leadership positions, whether it's Teen Vogue, Mattel, or other places in the entertainment industry, who've taken this education, who have taken this awareness, and who have taken this commitment, and actually manifested into a lot of the, the, the new paradigm that we're seeing And I think it's just so important to recognize that because there was no body diversity on MTV when, you know, when I first started watching at all, at all. I can think about Lizzo's speech at the MTV Video Awards on Sunday night. There was no one like Lizzo. There was no one who was celebrating who she was and, you know, the music that she's creating and being awarded and being brought onto a stage. That was not happening. That was not happening at all.
0: You know, I, I'm I'm a very optimistic person and I want to say we have come, we've come so far. We have created so much dialogue, so much. And then I think about just this morning when I was watching the news, talking about all these isms, ageism. I don't know if you saw about Lisa, is it laflemme, the Canadian reporter? She was a reporter no, for see that. 35 years on the news. And she just got fired because she let her hair go gray. Uh That uh, talk about a, a slap in the face to aging, being a woman. I mean, and again, I want to be very clear, Melanie, I am, I'm a very opt, but I'm a, I'm a realist. You know what I mean? I'm optimistic. And I also, and I thought to myself, this was on CNN. It was on all the major talk shows. And I thought, am I hearing this correctly? That a a well-known anchor woman of 35 years was fired because she let her hair go gray, and they said they are changing the the business plan and their listenership, and that's why they let her go.
1: Did they actually say the gray hair, or that was just the some of the theory? Because I, again, I, I haven't seen it.
0: I oh, I can't. Re- I don't remember. I don't recall. I I do know there was something that it that the news media said that they're looking into it, that they try, you know, they try not to discriminate and things like that. So there is some kind of a, like they're investigating it. And so I also want to say shame on me if I brought something up that was just like on the news and we don't know if it's accurate or not, but.
1: No, but I think what you bring up is important because ageism, I feel like, I feel like for a long time, ageism and ableism Were talked about the least. Um, I definitely feel both are talked about much more. Um, We certainly see more representations of women over thirty-five than we have. And you know, to to be really clear, it's like just because we've had progress doesn't mean again that we have parity or any kind of equity. We're simply, for me, what was so important at a particular point um, because I've been so heavily involved in this for so many decades. I had to look for wins. I had to look for change. Otherwise, I just, there's no way I could have uh, sustained what I was doing for so long, let alone curating, you know, four anthologies and doing the research. There's no way. Um, but you know, as I've taught my students and i've as I've written, just because we're celebrating our wins, do not get lulled into a false sense of security. I mean, just look at if you know, looking at the Supreme Court, right? Don't get lulled into a false sense of security about your rights and about, you know, um sort of what 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 you have access to or or what you know you mm, what may be possible for you in the culture. Um, that is subject to change at any time, to be taken away, to be reversed, et cetera. And yet, you know, in order to deal with some pretty big blows and massive backlash that we've experienced in the last, I'm going to say, five to seven years at this point, it's important for me and it's important for the people that I teach and educate and serve to to be able to hold the duality of there's some shit and there's also some real beauty that we are resilient and capable enough to be able to hold all of life and not just to have the tragedy overshadow the joy or to have the joy overshadow the losses or, you know, the the backlash, but to do both has been really crucial for me. And the, that capacity was built through my, my own practices and certainly ageism. I mean, as I age as well, um, you know, is, is so evident and we need to continue doing the work. And
0: we also need to focus on the wins so that we have the sustainability to do so. And this goes back to the beginning of the conversation about our power within or our power over, because if I have power from within, I can navigate, I I can navigate through the situations where there's some, there's, it's not always a win. I can say, I can, I can do that. I can see the duality. I can hold both and not get so, um, so hopeless that I feel helpless. Does that make sense? Totally. So,
1: and that is not only embodiment and empowerment, like we we're saying, right? And that, that power from within, but that's also resilience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's having the capacity to honestly just be alive as a human right now.
0: Yeah, Melanie, I could go on for... <laughs> for so long. And we do have to start bringing this to an end. And I'm sorry that we do. Is there anything that you wanted to share today on the episode that I didn't ask? I mean, I know there's so much more that we can talk about, but is there anything that you specifically wanted to add before we end or before I just tell you how grateful I am that you were on the show?
1: (laughs) Oh, thank you. I'm grateful too. Um, Honestly, I just want to just leave one final sort of thought in its all of its powerful simplicity, which is every single, you know, element of change personally and collectively, first of all, begins with awareness, is followed up with choice, and third begins with that first action or step. Because I think it can feel, you know, so monumentous. And even listening to us speak. While it may be inspiring, educational, illuminating, whatever it may be for listeners, I also think it can feel overwhelming for listeners to listen to two women who have been doing this work for decades, right? And you're like, "Oh my gosh, how do I get? Whoa, that's a lot." And it's like, right? it's 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 having that awareness and have making a choice and following it up with action. one thing, one thing, one step, one action one thought, one shift that creates, uh, that creates a really monumental change. And so I just wanted to leave it with some simplicity after I think a lot of layers and density um, that it can, it can be that simple, not necessarily easy, but it can be very, very simple. And so I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to be here and very grateful, obviously to you and your team, Karen, and to everyone who's tuning in.
0: Melanie, I I can't thank you enough. From the bottom of my heart, this has been such a powerful conversation and I, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. All right, everyone. That does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybytespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bytes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at at recoverybytespod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery Bite. Thanks for listening.